Matthew chapter 10 is where we are this morning. Matthew chapter 10. And normally I would read the text that we're in, but we're actually going to be in all of Matthew chapter 10. So it's a little bit large to read. So I'm going to make references as we walk through this text. So just not going to read as we normally would right up front. But let me pray right up front as we need to do. Heavenly Father, we have sang of your mercies. We have sang of your majesty. And we cannot keep this just to ourselves, our families, our church. It, it is a message that must go to the nations. You are Lord of the nations. They will bow their knee. But it is our desire to see many of these nations, from these nations bow willingly before you return. We recognize that this great commission must be completed before you will return. And so let us go. Let us, let us send. Let us be a part of bringing your people in the harvest. Bringing in the harvest of souls that you have purchased. Oh Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning. That it would bear fruit in all of our lives. So that we would no longer look at life perhaps the way we have enjoying it, all the pleasures that can be ours and all the comforts that can be ours, but to say, oh Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to fulfill your commission? I put no limits on what it is that you would have me to do. So please, Lord, uh, through your spirit, use the word today to direct our focus to this great Savior whom we have the privilege and the honor and the, and the opportunity to proclaim. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Christian missions, it's the response of Christ's church on earth to the Lord's command to go into all the world and to make disciples of Christ in all nations. So, we, we carry out this commission through the preaching of the good news that our sins can be Forgiven, Eternal life with God is possible through faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of His atoning death and His resurrection from the dead. So this glorious gospel, this good news, God says that, preaching that, we get to see the power of God for salvation to all who believe this message. This command of Christ to go into all the nations, it reflects the heart of God. Christ Himself, He tells us this. John 3.16 You don't need to turn there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then Jesus tells us why the Father sent Him in the, into the world. That the world might be saved through Him. Several places in Scripture echo this purpose. Uh, we have Jesus in Luke 19 saying, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, It's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, Jesus in Mark chapter 10, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Father sent His Son into the world to save sinners because He takes no pleasure in the death of the, weak, of the wicked, Ezekiel says. He desires all men to come to repentance, Peter says. To be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, Paul says. To Christ's command for making disciples of the nations, it flows out of the Father's reason for sending His own Son. And the response of Christ's church down through the ages, all the way until today, it has been to emulate God's heart and obey the Lord's command to send men and women to preach and to proclaim His gospel to the nations. 
that those whom the Father has chosen might hear the gospel in it, hear his voice, the voice of their shepherd to come and follow him. This must be the heart of this church. This church is here because another church had this heart and sent us 16 years ago. 16 years ago this month was when this church began. We must carry out this charge from our Lord and Savior. From the Lord's own example, I want us to see the response of a church that sees the plentiful harvest, desires to send workers to bring in that harvest. What is a church's part in sending out workers into the Lord's harvest? My title this morning is The Sending Church, Responding to Christ's Call for Gospel Workers. The Sending Church, Responding to Christ's Call to Send uh, uh, for Gospel Workers. Excuse me. Somewhere in there you got, might have got the title. And it's from this chapter, Matthew chapter 10 that we're going to see that the practice of ascending church is to cultivate Christ-like compassion, train up Christ-centered disciples, provide Christ-centered encouragement, and model Christ-honoring faithfulness. I'm not going to repeat that. It's too long. Just follow along with me. If you capture those main points, you've captured what I want you to walk away with. And we'll walk through each one of these. So, as I said, our text is, is Matthew chapter 10, when the Lord selects and instructs and then sends His twelve disciples into the Lord's harvest to preach the gospel throughout Israel. And this is going to be a pretty brisk walk through this chapter, so we're not going to go too deeply into each of these applications, but... I trust there enough to encourage us to be a sending church. In chapters 8 and 9, leading up to chapter 10, of course, Matthew has been attesting to Jesus' divine authority. He's been providing evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah for those with eyes to see. He's done this by, by providing accounts of many healings, including a leper, a centurion's slave, Peter's mother-in-law, a paralytic. He's given sight to two different blind men. He's calmed the great storm on the sea. He's cast out a legion of demons from one man. He raised from the dead a man's daughter. He restored speech to a man made mute by demons. And then he's called men to follow him. All of this is screaming, the Messiah has come. Now, he left the people in each city and village, each one that he would move on from. They were astounded with his authority. So Matthew is about to focus now on Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples and how he initially instructs and trains them. But I want us to see first what it is that motivates him to do this. What is motivating him to send disciples out? Right? Because that's what's preceding. There's something preceding his sending. And it's his compassion. His compassion. So the first practice of ascending church is to cultivate Christ-like compassion. Cultivate Christ-like compassion. So follow me now as I read Matthew 9, verses 36 through 38. Obviously right leading us into chapter 10. 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Here we see that what motivated the Son of God to come to earth to teach and to preach to and to heal the sinful people who deserved only condemnation in hell. 
What was it that motivated him? It was compassion. The multitudes followed Jesus wherever he went. They were enthralled by the miracles that they saw. Uh, They were affected by the gracious words that they heard from him. They had never seen, they had never heard anything like it before. Many came to him with needs in their own lives or in those of loved ones. They came for healing. They came for deliverance. Wouldn't you? Even if you didn't think he was the Messiah or wondered, but you hear healings coming through a man and you've got your paralyzed son or, or, or your mother-in-law with cancer or something like that. Wouldn't you do everything you could to go? That's what these people were doing. They were coming. But when Jesus saw them, he didn't just see their physical needs. He saw their greater needs. It was a need far greater than a withered hand or a debilitating disease or blind eyes or a possessed body. As great as those needs are, there's a greater need still. He saw their neglected souls. He felt compassion for them. Compassion is something that you feel. The word itself refers to the intestines, bowels. What do bowels have to do with compassion? That's where you that's where you feel these intense emotions, anxiety, fear remorse, pity. And this is why when you're fearful, your stomach's also upset. Jesus felt in his body the symptoms of his deep caring. Chapter 8, Matthew tells us that uh, to fulfill the prophecies Isaiah spoke about the Messiah, Jesus himself, he says, he took on our infirmities, carried away our diseases, In his compassion, he suffered both physically and emotionally with those who came to him for healing. Those who should have uh, taught the people about their God had neglected them, leaving them ignorant and hopeless and helpless, dying, unprepared for death. And it was this sight that moved him to a deep pity. This is the heart of Christ that that he could not see such things and not be moved. Such is the heart of God towards men. Remember when the Lord revealed to Moses the the goodness of the thing? Moses said, I want to see your glory, God. I'll let you see the back of my I'll let you see my back. You can't handle the rest, Moses. He stuffs them in a rock. The cleft of the rock. We sing about that. You ever wondered what that meant? cleft of the rock in that hymn that we sing and then God lets him see his back and this is what he says this is the glory being pronounced as he passes by Moses compassion and gracious slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity transgression and sin. That is God's heart. That is God's nature. That is what He says is glorious about Himself. Oh, no, no, it's His holiness. Oh, no, it's His justice. Those are glories too. But that's not what He showed Moses at the request that He had for Him. He showed him His compassion and His loving kindness. That is what He says is glorious about Himself. His or sinners of which we all are and we were once lost in our sins but because the Lord is gracious and compassionate you're now here singing His praises from unburdened hearts and clean consciences wiped clean by the blood shed for you see when Jesus looked at the people He knew their lost condition He saw the reality of their need. He was certainly moved to heal. And he certainly helped many. But Matthew says he was moved more deeply by needs they didn't even know they had to be freed from their bondage to sin. He saw them for what they were. They were distressed and dispirited, he says, like sheep without a shepherd. 
their sinful condition had devastated their souls. Leaving them helpless and hopeless. No one to protect them. No one to care for them. In chapter 23, Jesus describes those who were their their shepherds. He describes them as pitiless, cruel. They tie up heavy burdens. They lay them on men's shoulders, but but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. See, they they could lift those burdens off by telling them about God. Instead, they tell them what they want them to do for God and put burdens heavy on because no man can rise to the standards and the levels that, that God has put on us. We, don't, we need to hear about His law so that we know we need His what? His grace. And they weren't telling about grace. They just kept keeping on law. 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 That was the shepherds they have. Pitiless shepherds. Even worse though, is that they, would, they were shutting off the kingdom of heaven from people. Because they themselves refused to enter and to go in. And so they're not going to lead anybody else in because they don't want to go in. In utter contrast is Christ now, the good shepherd, who's motivated by his compassion to alleviate not just suffering itself, but the very cause of suffering. And the church that desires to send will seek to cultivate this same Christ-like compassion within the hearts of God's people. How? Well, one important way Christ-like compassion for the lost is cultivated in God's people is to regularly proclaim the grace of God. Regularly proclaim the grace of God. Mark, in his gospel, he tells of the time when the two blind men were were sitting by the road in Jericho and they heard that Jesus was passing by and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And it says there, he was moved by compassion and he restored their sight when a leper came to him and he said catch the phrase in here if you are willing you can make me clean and again Jesus it says was moved by compassion he touched the man he made him clean Think of the parable that Jesus told of the slave who owed an unpayable debt to his king, who then felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. See, from such displays of Christ's compassion, we get to proclaim the grace of God for sinners. Christ can open your eyes. He can open your eyes to see what is glorious about him, his grace, his compassion. Christ can make you clean so that you can stand righteous in the presence of God. Christ paid the full debt of your sin on the cross. And God not only uses such preaching to draw sinners by His irresistible grace, but He also reminds His people, us, of the compassion and the grace that they have received. And we know there was no reason in us that God should ever have saved us. We have no claim on God. His grace and His care towards us, they are born of His compassion. He could have satisfied the righteous demands of His holiness by condemning us. But His love and His compassion, it moved Him to provide a way of salvation by His grace and at great cost to Himself. What happens when God's people regularly hear preaching and teaching about such grace for them in Christ. What happens? Well, the same gospel compassion found in Christ is cultivated in us. When they look at the spiritually distressed and the helpless people in the world today, maybe in certain countries denied gospel preaching or or cities where there's no sound gospel witness and they can't help but feel the same type of concern for souls that moves men and women now into action. The church that sends will cultivate the compassion of Christ and the people of God. How? By regularly proclaiming the grace of God. Another important way Christ-like compassion for the lost is cultivated in God's people is to faithfully preach the depravity of man. Preach the depravity of man 
people are distressed and dispirited because they have no shepherds to protect and to guide them to God. And at the same time, the Bible teaches that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. It also teaches us that man is born dead in transgression and sin. He's held captive by his own love for sin such that he won't seek God because he loves the darkness. He doesn't understand the things of God. And so men suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and they continue to willfully live in their sin. And when God's people come to understand this, they recognize God's sovereign grace is man's only hope. Man's self-righteousness is destroyed along with man's ability to be saved by his own free will. That's not going to happen. You can't choose. You won't choose what you hate. The Bible says no one loves God. So how can man be saved? What what is impossible for man is possible with God. Preaching the depravity of man leads to the only conclusion. God's gospel must be preached for it alone is the power of God for salvation. And this gospel, it must be preached here and it must be preached in the world so that every tribe, every tongue, people, and nation from them God may call forth His elect. The church that sends faithfully preaches the depravity of man. And a final way that Christ-like compassion for the lost is cultivated in God's people is to constantly pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus was compelled by His compassion for the deep needs of His neglected people because also, or I say it's also because they faced God's final judgment. It was coming. When the tares will be separated from the wheat and the tares will be burned up. Right? Knowing the depravity of man and the sovereign grace of God, it shows God's people, us, our solemn duty. They must do as Jesus calls them in verse 38 here. We must pray for God to send workers out into His harvest. You know, we're all bothered by the, the state of the world. Deceit, pride, arrogance, lust, envy, hatred, covetousness. Right? It's just, it's like sewage in our daily news feed. It just keeps spilling out. What good can God's people do? We can each be a light where God has saved us, yes. And, and that is certainly good. And, and that is what we should do. We can each give faithfully of our resources to missions. That is also good. And that is what we should and continue to do. But the surest way of doing good and checking evil in the world, what is it? It's prayer. Witnessing and giving are both good and necessary. But prayer is death. Our work and our money are vain if unaccompanied by our prayers. Through prayer, we gain the help of the Holy Spirit. Yes, money supports missionaries and, and we need to give. It supports ministries. It supports seminaries to train preachers and missionaries so that they can be sent. But the Holy Spirit alone can make those who are sent effective workers for the harvest who will not be ashamed. And so, may you see that as you cultivate Christ-like compassion through preaching God's grace. Let me pause here for a second. There's something that as I was preparing this and going over this, I just thought, this is lacking in our church. I'm sure it's happening at different places, but there is no corporate effort of our church to pray for those whom we are supporting and asking God to send. So I'm just putting this out there. Perhaps God is burdening you to help our church to do this and apply this specific point. Are you burdened to pray for missions? If you are, come speak to me afterwards. Let's talk about how we can... Let's talk about how we can start something where we pray and ask God in obedience to send workers out into the harvest. So 
that's something that God is burdening you to do. Come speak to me afterwards. So, we need to see that as we cultivate Christ-like compassion through the preaching of God's grace and man's depravity, compassion leads you to see that your first duty as a sending church is to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And as God's people pray for him to send workers, God may move on some that are sitting here this morning to being open to being that someone themselves. Isn't that exciting? It's like in a classroom, like, uh, you're not talking to me, are you? I don't know. I don't know if I am. But we can pray and ask the Lord of the harvest and see if he might send some of us. That would be glorious. I mean, we love our missionaries. Can you imagine supporting someone in the field that you sat in these chairs with? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I know they're out there on our behalf, bringing in the harvest. Don't count yourself out. If you've got Christ in your heart, don't count yourself out. So this leads us now into chapter 10 where we find the next practice of the sending church. And that is to train up Christ-following disciples. Train up Christ-following disciples. The practice of ascending church is to cultivate Christ-like compassion and train up Christ-following disciples. So at the beginning of the chapter, we see that those whom Jesus called to pray for workers, he now calls to become workers. See how that works? As the disciples witnessed Christ's compassion for others and began to see the world as he sees it, they also began to see that they themselves were called to go into the world to warn the lost of the coming harvest of God's judgment and to invite them in to the Lord's kingdom. So up to this point in his ministry, Jesus had ministered alone. Right? These 12 men, along with the multitudes of other people that followed him, they'd only been observers or recipients. And then after the death of John the Baptist, Jesus now was the sole worker in God's field. And it is now the time for him to select and commission those who are going to join as fellow workers. So the sending church will seek to do much the same thing, and that is to train up Christ-following disciples. So the first step in doing this is to invest in those who demonstrate faithfulness. We invest in those who demonstrate faithfulness. It says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. Now, out of all who followed, Jesus had chosen 12. 12 to prepare to send out. These were men who had left their nets, their crops, their tax collecting booths, their other businesses. And now for three years, they'd walked with Jesus. They'd watched Jesus. They'd listened to Him. They'd learned from Him. And even though they often misunderstood Him, none of their time with Him was wasted. He was building off of their initial faithfulness, further training them so that He could then send them. And their first step as a disciple of Christ was followed by several other steps of faithfulness to Him. And then when the right time came, these disciples became His apostles, right? Those who are sent. Whom Jesus, verse 5, he says here now, sent out after instructing them. Paul echoes the same principle of investing in those who are faithful to Christ when he tells us in, in uh, Tim, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the Lord's plan for ministry and missions involves faithful men and women. Faithful men and women receive what is trusted to them and then simply take the next step. Now, I'd like to use an example from my own life, not to somehow lift up myself. It's just I don't have any other examples to readily pull from. So let me just pull from my own life here. You know, preparing to launch... Um, the launch of the Cornerstone Bible Church back in 2006. Prior to that, I was attending Community Bible Church in Vallejo for 15 years. Um, and I can honestly say that for the majority of those 15 years, you know, being a pastor was not my goal. It was not even on my radar. I started, though, back in 1991 
with discipleship. Discipleship led to opportunities to serve in other ways and discipling other men. Serving and discipling others, it led to the desire for growing in my knowledge of God. There was, prior to the seminary that exists there now, there was Grace School of Theology. I started attending classes there. Classes at Grace School of Theology led to the desire to share what I was learning. One opportunity to teach led to other teaching opportunities. Teaching opportunities led to further training, which came about when the leadership training and development uh, started in 1996. We're doing that here still today. And then came teaching in an adult Sunday school. And then came interning in a home fellowship group. And then leading a home fellowship group. And then the opportunity to preach. And then becoming an elder. And then being sent out to plant the Cornerstone Bible Church. See, what started with just discipleship, discipling someone else, eventually became planting a church. If ascending church follows the example of Christ, it invests in those who demonstrate faithfulness because through that process, they know whom God has called them to send out. You send out your faithful people. Another step in training up Christ-following disciples is to challenge them to give of themselves. Verse 6 says, Jesus sent these men out to be an extension of himself as the good shepherd. And if you see his description there in verses 7 and 8, he says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Right? They're all out there. As you have received freely, freely give. So we're hearing of these great needs that the people had and, and the good that Christ was sending them out to do. And they were to seek out those who are lost, care for them like you would care for a needy sheep, proclaim good news to them, relieve their suffering, decrease their cause for sorrow, increase their reasons for joy. See, a faithful worker learns that giving is better than receiving. As Jesus instructs in verse 8, He says the grace and the goodness given freely to Him, it's to be freely given now to others. That's the life of a faithful minister of Christ. Guess what? It's not one of these. The life of someone who is faithfully serving Christ will not be one of ease. It's one spent. It's one being spent in body, in mind, time, and strength doing the work of His calling. I'm not talking about the pastor, friends. I'm talking about a faithful worker. You know, I can't think of a... Can you think of a single worthy profession in which laziness is a desired quality? Especially not in those whom God would send out. Laziness is the enemy of faithfulness and fruitfulness in ministry. Laziness breeds the desire to be served, unlike Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Even though Christ was Lord over the church, He still served the church. He still supplied the needs for the church. And God's workers are called to do the same. Not lording over the faith of others, but being workers with those that we serve for their joy, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24. And so the sending church invests in those who demonstrate faithfulness, challenging them to give of themselves and to keep giving of themselves. And then thirdly, in training up Christ-centered disciples, the sending church must teach them about God's faithfulness. Ministry contains many unknowns. It involves many challenging decisions. It requires steps of faith. And when you read the next several verses in, in chapter 10 here, Jesus was sending these men out with all sorts of uncertainties about money in chapter 10, 9, excuse me, verse 9, about provisions in verse 10, about destinations in verse 11, about ministry partners in verses 12 and 13, even fruitfulness in 14 and 15. Now, again, just turning back into my own life here, I remember first bringing up the idea of being sent out to my pastor, the Community Bible Pastor Steve Fernandez. And at that time, 
I was considering moving back to the city where I grew up, Spokane, Washington, because we would go back there often with my family. And while we were there, we, we recognized that there were no churches that we would attend if we were living here. And when I brought this up about, hey, uh, I'm thinking about this. I know there's a need. His response, my pastor's response to my thoughts of returning to Spokane and start a church was, how about if we sent you from somewhere from Vacaville to Sacramento? Well, first of all, I just had to get over the shock that he was actually, you know, not saying, Nick, Nick, <laughs> hold on, buddy. You know, he was actually just like thinking ahead. It blew me away. So after I recovered from that, then I was like, wait, Vacaville to Sacramento? That's a really big area. Vacaville to Sacramento? That's, that's so general. Now, Spokane in the valley where I grew up, I knew that place. I, 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 could, I could lay out where I might go or where we might think a church might work. Or I knew people there who maybe I could contact them and they might be willing to be a part of something like this. But now I'm being directed to a larger area that I didn't know well, and I knew almost no one. Where to plant a church was just the first of several uncertainties related to being sent. But thankfully, for the previous 15 years, I'd heard sermon after sermon. I'd heard lesson after lesson on God's faithfulness. And from the scriptures, I was taught that God not only loves me, but he has the ability to care for me. And it was that confidence in the Lord's care for me, my growing family at the time, four kids, one on the way, that enabled me to leave my job as a software engineer whoop, whoop, yeah, and become a full-time seminary student, part-time Starbucks barista. Whoop, whoop. And that was just the first of many times when I would have to trust God to provide and in sending us out, the, the church supported us financially. A year and a half into our church plant here in Sacramento, we were still at Jefferson Elementary in South Sac at that time. Every church plant starts in a school, you know. And that's where we started. Six, well, no, a year and a half in, we were there. And we get word from Pastor Steve again, Hey, Nick, we want to send others out. So we're cutting off your support. Six months later and a whole lot of prayer later, we were financially independent. Now, if you think I'm boasting here, I am. But not in myself. I was... I was shaking at these things. I was gathering them to pray for this. I simply trust that God would provide. If he wanted us here, he would provide. He clung to him. He's the one, Paul said, would supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the time comes when God puts us in circumstances where we can then take what we've been taught about his faithfulness and honor him with our trust. And this is what Ascending Church does. It trains up Christ-following disciples by investing those who demonstrate faithfulness training them to give of themselves and then teaching them about God's faithfulness so they'll be ready when their time comes to trust God. The third practice of ascending church is they provide Christ-centered encouragement. Provide Christ-centered encouragement. So Jesus wanted his apostles to have an idea about the obstacles that they would face being sent out in his name. And some of what Jesus mentions in, in chapter 10 here it applies really only to the apostles and their circumstances. Um, but there's much here that applies as well to his ministers in every generation. And so if I were to sum up what Jesus is now saying in verses 16 through 23, the title that's not, not the, um, inspired, that's above it, is a hard road before them, right? So if we sum up all this, it is that they should expect a hard road ahead. Instead of looking at the specific persecution that Jesus said that they're going to face, let these verses show how important your, your encouragement in Christ and support will be to those who you send out, who we send out. The first encouragement that you can provide as a sending church is to clarify the cost of discipleship 
Maybe it should be more accurate to call this the basis, really, for future encouragement when difficult time comes. The people of Palestine understood the nature of sheep. They understood the danger of wolves. And the sheep's greatest enemy has always been wolves. The usual danger for a flock is that wolves sneak in among them. But notice that Jesus, what he says in verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So it's not the flock in which comes the wolf. It's the sheep going into the wolves. Those who are sent are sent into enemy territory. And Jesus is setting before them the cost of discipleship. And in the same way that he did not escape opposition and persecution, neither were they. Persecution is not something that anyone who is sent wants to experience, but those whom Jesus sends must understand that they are voluntarily choosing to walk into the wolves' own den. What shepherd sends his sheep to the wolves? The good shepherd. Jesus. He does this because that is where they can serve him best. And that is where they can be most effective in winning others to him. Every pastor who seeks to boldly and uncompromisingly serve the Lord, they watched back in February of 2021 as this drama unfolded in Canada when Pastor James Coates was jailed for refusing to comply with the government's requirements to limit those who came to worship in his church and enforce masking and physical distancing. He also then declined to accept the conditions for his release Because he knew in good conscience he couldn't agree with them. I'm just going to go out and do what got me in here, so might as well just keep me here. We got together and we prayed here. We studied. And then we made this decision. We're going to meet in person. We need to be together. The church God needs to meet together. We preached a series of sermons on why the church needs to meet. We wrote a letter to the governor saying, we're meeting. Not, you know, like, puffing out our chest. Like, hey, we respect who you are, but you're not the Lord. We're meeting in obedience to the Lord. All the while, I know I wondered, where is this all going to end up? I really don't know. I mean, it's not like I was expecting the fleece to come busting in here. We're, We're a small fish in a big pond. But you can't help but wonder, what could this lead to? But having already counted the cost, having already accepted being sent as a sheep amidst wolves, what I needed most to be reminded was what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I live. Christ is me. In the life which I now live by faith, I live in, uh, I, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. So my right to direct my own life is dead to me. I don't want persecution. I don't want suffering. I don't want hardship. I don't want it any more than any of you do. At the same time, I can't follow both Christ and my flesh. As Jesus laid out in Luke 9.62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is put to the kingdom of God. These are the types of costs that should be clarified by the sending church and must be counted by those sent. Another thing a sending church can do by way of encouragement is to offer wisdom where it's lacking. Offer wisdom where it's lacking. Because of where Jesus is sending us, he says, he says, be shrewd in verse 16. Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. And as we take the gospel to a hostile world, Jesus is saying that we must be wise. We must avoid the snares that are set for us. But we must also be innocent and we must serve the Lord blamelessly. Our first and primary source of wisdom is God and His Word. We go to Him in prayer and we study to ask for and to seek out the wisdom that we lack. But a wonderful source of wisdom is that which is gained through the experiences of serving Christ over time. Right? And sending church can provide that for those who are sent. You're not out there all on your own, right? I was talking about, think of people here being out there. You're going to be a source of encouragement for them. You know, we, I enjoyed a, 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 Rosita and I both enjoyed a great relationship with our pastor and his wife. 
um, after we were sent out. We met many times over the years for dinner and so forth. And there, I remember there was one time, I may have told this story. I only have so many, so if I repeat it, just, you know, don't call out. Don't blow my story before I get there. I remember I needed a bit of wisdom. This was, I was a young pastor, small church, we like year three or so, you know, and a man had come to our church and on that one of those first visits, he, he like spilled his story and his concern for his brother who was wayward and all this. And, and he was local and he continued to come and, and he seemed like he was going to make our church his home, which again, small church, just like, and then suddenly he stopped coming. And he didn't answer when I tried to call on him and check on him or anything like that. And it was only through a mutual friend that I found out that he was offended that I never sought out his brother. Tried to pursue him. He told me about him. Said he was wayward. And then he expected me then to go seek him out. Well, in those early days, right, losing one person that you thought would stick around, you know, that's, that's a tough blow. And I saw our pastor shortly after this. And was sitting there and, how's, how's the church, Nick? And, you know, I... That's right on my mind, like happened like the night before. And so I'm telling him, as, I, as he's listening to me, it was like without skipping a beat, without a second thought, he goes, selfish man, you'll be glad he's gone. See, he brought wisdom where it was lacking. You don't want a selfish man like that in your church. It's just going to create more problems, more havoc, more heartache. The Lord removed him, and you should be glad. Even though our pastor Steve is now at home with the Lord, the counsel, it still comes. We still go and speak with now Pastor Phil, his wife Becky, other elders. We still gain from them. Provides much needed encouragement and wisdom in Christ. That's what we can do for others, right? The Lord's brought us through some things. Members of the Sending Church, each of you have the opportunity to provide Christ-centered encouragement to those who are serving abroad, and often in more difficult circumstances than you know we are sitting here in America. And each of you can encourage those who've been sent out as you seek to strengthen faith when it's tested. Verses 17 through 23, Jesus prepares them to face circumstances that would certainly test their faith. You know, men who want them in jail, betrayal by relatives, hatred by all on account of his name. But, I don't know about you, but my faith can be tested by far less than that. And as those who are a part of Ascending Church, you can make it your goal to stay current in the field with those who are in the field. And the ability we have in our day to interact and to communicate and to build a relationship with those in the field, it's unprecedented in history. You can actually see their face and talk to them through this. You know, it's just, it's stunning and, you know, before, think of it, years, years, for far longer than we've had this ability, it would take months for your letter to reach somebody and get the encouragement they needed. And we can do it by pressing some buttons. <clears throat> so, we can be like Andrew Fuller was to William Carey. Think about this. Just get a vision for this. He described... William Carey described his mission to India in 1792. He described it as going into a deep, unexplored mine. And Fuller was the one who said, no, no, Carey said, I'll go down if you'll hold the rope. That's what Carey did. That's what we can do. We can hold the rope for those that we send out. We can strengthen faith in Christ when it's tested in an essential way. Right? As, as ascending church. We can provide encouragement needed to encourage us in Christ. There's one last point. Model Christ-honoring faithfulness. I'm not going to get to that. But there's another thing that was on my mind. I thought, maybe I'll say it, maybe I won't. But I'm going to say it. You know, not, it's not a big deal, but it's something we don't have. Talked about praying. What goes hand in hand with praying? You know, if we, we should gather together and pray for those whom we have sent. But we also need to have co- regular communication with those who are sent. Is that a burden that you have? I would like to be a source of communication 
for our church so that I can encourage people then to pray and even reach out, build a relationship with these people. Maybe that's you. Maybe this is part of the way that you can be faithful in serving and say, I want to do this. I want to help coordinate prayer. And maybe you have a partner or someone else says, I want to help coordinate communication. That would be a blessing. And so I'd ask you to consider, maybe that's you. Maybe this, maybe the Lord, is, the Spirit of God is pricking you and saying, do this, do this. We need this. Okay? Modeling Christ-honoring faithfulness from 24 to the end of the chapter. You know, this is where we, you know, we determine to fear only Christ. That's what we need to do as ascending church so that those in the field will see that and be encouraged. We preach the surpassing worth of Christ so that others will see and do that when they're in the field. We labor faithfully in the name of Christ so that others will labor faithfully when they go. So my friends, our work continues because Christ has not yet returned. So the commission is still on. Make disciples of the nations. There are disciples of Christ to be made here in Sacramento, yes, and we need to be faithful to do that, but also among the nations. We must respond to Christ's call for workers by being a sending church. So let us strive to be a sending church by cultivating Christ-like compassion, training up Christ-following disciples, providing Christ-centered encouragement, and modeling Christ-honoring faithfulness. Heavenly Father, would you do a work, please, through your word as it has been preached. So that, first of all, we might have the honor and the privilege of being a sending church. To send out an individual or a family who's going to go serve Christ outside these walls, elsewhere. And have the joy of supporting and encouraging and strengthening them. And modeling faithfulness for them. Would you do that? Would you also raise up those who can help us to grow in the direction we need to grow. As a, as a church that desires to support, support those who have been sent. To come alongside them. To pray for them. By knowing their needs. To communicate with them. To know what their needs are. And to encourage relationships to be built amongst Many in the church with them. There are brothers and our sisters. We need to know them better than we do. Would you do this work for the sake of your name and for the glory of Christ being spread among the nations? And we ask this in his name. Amen.